Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Excuse Me History. Before we kick off this episode, just want to do a little brief recap of what we talked about last week. We talked a little bit about the opening moves of the Gettysburg campaign, kind of like the first pawns being moved across the chessboard, but the main focus was on the cavalry of both the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia. I went over the leadership, the makeup of both cavalries, their fighting styles, as well as just the general role of cavalry in the Civil War. When I ended last week's episode, it was the night of June 8th, and both the Confederate and Union cavalry were straddling either side of the Rappahannock River, concentrated around Brandy Station, which was a depot on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad a few miles east of Culpeper. Neither side was really aware where the enemy was located, and both of them planned to cross the Rappahannock on the morning of June 9th. I also wanted to clarify a term that I used in last week's episode, and will also use today, which was the word bivouac. When these armies were on the move, they would throw up very temporary camps so that it could quickly be broken down, packed up for the next day so that they could get on the march again. This was called bivouacking, so if I ever use that term, basically just it means a temporary camp. I think a good comparison is, you know, different kinds of camping. Like if you're going camping for a weekend or something, you're probably just bringing a pop-up tent, maybe a few supplies, so it can easily be thrown up and then broken down once you're done. When the armies were stationary, their camps were much more extensive. Kind of like if you ever went to a summer camp as a kid uh, for a week or maybe a month-long summer camp, there might be cabins or larger, more permanent tents, and the facilities would have been much more extensive, lots more infrastructure, as opposed to a bivouac. I also want to mention that on the Excuse Me History Facebook page that I'm going to be posting some maps, because I find that following any kind of battle or campaign is a lot easier if you have some sort of visual to look at so you can kind of follow the action. So I'll be posting a couple on the Excuse Me History Facebook page. Check those out. And if you're not on Facebook, there are a couple good resources on the internet. Uh, Wikipedia is actually pretty good. There's one guy named Hal Jesperson who designs pretty much any of the battle maps that you find on Wikipedia and they're very accurate and pretty easy to follow. Also, the American Battlefield Trust provides a few maps. There's a, a lot of it focuses on the, the layout of the battlefield and the kind of the modern state, who owns what property and stuff like that, but they have a few good maps as well to kind of follow along in the action. So now that that's out of the way, let's pick up where we left off last week. <laughs> Horses of Pleasanton's corps were unsaddled but not unbridled to save time in the morning. Anxious troopers tried to sleep for a couple of hours, but many were unable to do so. Albert Huntington, a member of the 8th New York Cavalry, remarked that they were trying to put past failures behind them in anticipation of the next day's fight. Quote, the shadow of the fearful loss of life suffered on that field, meaning Chancellorsville, was fading. Our own troops were alert and determined. Unquote. At 2 a.m., Union troopers were awakened to begin readying for the day's action. Coffee and breakfast were hastily made for the men, and within an hour, both wings of Pleasanton's corps were on the move. But things were already not going according to plan. 
Colonel Alfred Dufay's division was led down the wrong road by their local guide and had to backtrack several miles. General Gregg's division was already in place at Kelly's Ford but couldn't cross until Dufay was in position. This angered officer and trooper alike because not only did this throw a wrench in the timing of the operation, but it also meant that Gregg's men had to wake up early for nothing. Dufay's division finally arrived after a long countermarch. Before both divisions departed, General Judson Kilpatrick, a supposed teetotaler, pulled a whiskey flask out of his jacket, took a swig, and offered it to members of the 1st Maine Cavalry Regiment. The Mainers were known for their religious devotion and sometimes called the Puritans, but even they did not refuse a shot of liquid courage that morning. In a toast, one of the Mainers reportedly said, quote, Here's hoping we'll do as well at Brandy Station as we are doing at Whiskey Station, unquote. To which Kilpatrick replied, quote, Good. Blamed good. Unquote. Just as Gregg's and Dufay's divisions were crossing at Kelly's Ford, gunshots were heard from the direction of Buford's division, which was crossing at Beverly's Ford. Just before 4.30 a.m., several squadrons of Colonel Thomas Devon's brigade waded through the ford. Shrouded by a thick early morning fog, they surprised the rebel pickets that were posted close to the river. Most of them were captured before they could get off a shot. A few did manage to escape, in addition to several vedettes that had already been relieved of duty and were heading back to camp. One such person was Luther Hopkins, a 16-year-old private in the 6th Virginia Cavalry who was riding back to Grumble Jones's bivouac when he saw Yankee horse soldiers riding toward him through the pine trees. He later recalled, quote, I was riding with the captain in the rear. We were not aware that the Yankees were so close to us, and the captain was calling to the men to check their speed. I looked behind, called to the captain, and told him that they were right on us, and just as I spoke, two bullets went hissing by my head. The captain yelled to his men to move forward, and bending low on the necks of our horses, we gave them the spur." Unquote. As they neared camp at St. James Church, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Marshall's 7th Virginia Cavalry was riding hard toward the advancing Federals. Though the Confederates had just been taken by surprise on the morning of July 9th, they just so happened to be woken up by buglers playing Reveille just before the bulk of Buford's men crossed Beverly's Ford. They'd yet to eat, and many were still half-dressed or only wearing long underwear. Stewart's horse artillery was concentrated close to St. James Church, which made it vulnerable to capture if Jones's brigade was driven back. Major Robert Beckham, who commanded the artillery battalion, quickly went about limbering the guns so they could be transported elsewhere. Meanwhile, as the Federal Cavalry crossed the river, they heard the sounds of bugles and gunshots in the distance. Buford's 1st Brigade was led by Colonel Benjamin Franklin Davis, also known by his nickname, Grimes. Grimes Davis wasn't the most popular officer with the men who served under him. He had the reputation of being a strict disciplinarian, and was once called, quote, a proud tyrannical devil, unquote, by a trooper that served under him. Davis was from Alabama, attended West Point, and served as an antebellum cavalry officer. Despite three of his brothers deciding to volunteer to fight for the Confederacy, Davis sided with the Union. His southern upbringing seemed to give him no sympathy for the secessionists, and there was an apparent animosity he showed toward them in battle. Henry Norton, a trooper in the 8th New York Cavalry, wrote this about him, quote, When Colonel Davis found the rebels, he did not stop at anything, but went for them heavy. I believed he liked to fight the rebels as well as he liked to eat, unquote. Sword in hand, Davis was at the head of the 8th New York Cavalry, followed closely by the 8th Illinois and the 3rd Indiana Battalion. After they crossed the ford, they easily swept away any of the rebel pickets that lingered in the area and galloped through the pines towards St. James Church. As the morning fog began to clear, they spotted Beckham's artillery looking like a sitting duck and charged for it, but seemingly out of nowhere came the Confederate cavalry. Major Cable Flournoy's 6th Virginia and Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Marshall's 7th Virginia crashed into the charging New Yorkers and broke their momentum. Surrounded, most of the Yankee cavalrymen retreated, but Grimes Davis stood his ground. 
Saber in one hand, revolver in the other, he killed and wounded as many rebels as he could until Lieutenant R.O. Allen of the 6th Virginia shot him dead in the forehead. The scene was full of confusion and disorder. The New Yorkers fell back to regroup and were surpassed by the 8th Illinois, which dismounted and fired their carbines at the attacking Virginians. In addition, the Federals deployed a battery of artillery. The rebels took heavy casualties in the process and Flournoy's regiment fell back. With Davis dead, Major Alpheus Clark stepped in to lead the brigade, but seconds later it was mortally wounded by rifle fire. Finally, Major William S. McClure took command of Davis's brigade, which held firm against an attack from Marshal 7th Virginia. Their superiority in size forced Marshall to fall back as well. The Virginians quickly threw up an improvised defensive wall and took up positions behind it. Grumble Jones and the rest of his brigade then arrived on the scene, but just as quickly as they were there, the reorganized Federals charged at their position and broke the first line. The Federals angled their attack at the two howitzers that Beckham had failed to move away from danger. As they galloped towards the guns, Beckham ordered them to fire canister shot, which ripped holes in the assault column, killing and wounding many men and horses, but instead of retreating, they split into two directions and attempted to outflank the gunners. Before the Federals reached the howitzers, the 12th Virginia charged in to give the artillerymen enough time to withdraw their guns. The melee that ensued was described by one of the gunners as, quote, a mingled mass, fighting and struggling with pistol and saber like maddened savages, unquote. Jones, in an act of desperation, sent in the last of his regiments, the 35th Virginia Battalion, also known as the Comanche Regiment, and Colonel Lunsford Lomax's 11th Virginia. Lunsford Lomax kind of sounds like a Dr. Seuss character from one of those books of his that just got banned on account of racism. It was a risky move, for if it failed, Buford's division could have pushed through and captured the pivotal position of Fleetwood Heights. From there, they could threaten Brandy Station, and the Confederates would likely have to retreat to the safety of Culpeper. But the weight of the attack proved to be too much for the Federals. Davis's brigade fell back to reform. Behind them came Colonel Thomas Devon's brigade. Devon was born in New York City in 1822, the son of Irish immigrants. As a young man, he worked as a painter and varnisher with his brother. His only military experience prior to the war was as an officer in a New York militia regiment, but he turned out to be an above-average cavalry leader and earned the nickname Buford's Hard Hitter. At that point in the battle, Devon was the highest-ranking federal officer on the field and was therefore acting division commander. He ordered his two regiments, the 17th Pennsylvania and the 6th New York, plus one of Davis's, the 9th New York, to charge into the Comanches and Lomax's regiments. Exhausted and under strength, the Virginians were again forced to retreat after a fierce fight, in a short time, Grumble Jones's entire brigade had become engaged in battle. One by one, they charged into the fight, and though they'd shown tenacity in a tight situation, all broke in the face of the enemy. General Jones had already sent one courier to Stewart's headquarters on Fleetwood Heights, begging for reinforcements to keep his line from collapsing. Hours before the fight even began, Stewart was already awake. The sounds of carbine, pistol fire, cannons, and bugles alerted him to the presence of the Federals. He quickly sent out couriers to all of his subordinate officers to come to the aid of Jones. Generals Wade Hampton and Rooney Lee were quick to respond and moved their brigades into position to support him. General Beverly Robertson alerted Stuart to the presence of more Union cavalry and infantry that had forced their way across the Rappahannock at Kelly's Ford. This was Gregg's wing. Stuart ordered Robertson to hold his position along the Kelly's Ford Road and prevent the Federals from breaking through. That left General Fitzhugh Lee's brigade, which was several miles northwest of the fighting. Lee himself was still out of action with rheumatism, but mistakenly, Stuart's courier was sent to him instead of the acting brigade commander, Colonel Thomas Munford. By the time that the courier found Munford, it was 10 a.m., nearly five hours after the fight had begun, and three hours since Stuart sent him to bring up Lee's brigade. 
Munford was confused by the vagaries of his orders, and the courier had left before he was able to ask him exactly where he was supposed to go. Instead of proceeding to Fleetwood Heights, he only marched his men a few miles southeast to Wellsford's Ford and waited there. There was a brief lull in the fighting around St. James Church when Colonel Devon decided not to press the attack and regrouped his brigade. Around that time, Generals Alfred Pleasanton and John Buford were now on the field. Buford brought up his reserve brigade, which consisted of four regiments of regular U.S. Army troopers and the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry Regiment. He also had General Ames's infantry brigade in hand, as well as several batteries of artillery. While his division readied to renew their assaults, Buford and Pleasanton began to improvise a new plan of attack. Pleasanton's original objective had been thwarted by unforeseen circumstances, but that didn't mean they couldn't still win the day. In the meantime, the Federal artillery unlimbered and began hurling shot and shell at the Confederate defensive positions. But now, they weren't just facing one worn-out brigade, but the elite cavalrymen of Hampton and Rooney Lee. Major Beckham's rebel artillery also were in a safe position and commenced a counter-battery fire, which managed to silence some of the Yankee guns. General Buford ordered Captain George Cram's 6th U.S. Cavalry to deploy a skirmish line and advance towards St. James Church. He then ordered the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry to advance on horseback and charge toward the church where there was a gap in the rebel lines and there were only a couple of artillery pieces. The 6th Pennsylvania had an interesting history. When they were originally created, they were not equipped with carbines or sabers, but lances, long pole weapons that had historically been carried by the Knights of the Middle Ages and some cavalry units in the Napoleonic era. Russia's lancers, as they were originally known, were relieved of their antiquated weapons just a couple months prior and now carry the standard issue Sharps carbine and cavalry sabers. But now, they were being ordered to perform a mounted cavalry charge against a dismounted enemy. Probably could have used those lances now. They started off in a trot, and when they were within a few hundred yards, the bugler blared the tune to charge, and the horses galloped at full speed toward the rebel line. The lancers were shot at from either flank and dropped like flies. The regiment's commander, Major Robert Morris, had his horse shot out from underneath him and was captured by the Confederates. His second-in-command, Major Henry Whalen, described the action. Quote, As we flew along, our men yelling like demons, grape and canister, were poured into our left flank. We had to leap three wide, deep ditches, and many of our horses and men piled up in a writhing mass in those ditches and were ridden over. I didn't know that Morris was not with us and we dashed on, driving the rebels into and through the woods, our men fighting with the saber alone whilst they used principally pistols. Our brave fellows cut them out of the saddle and fought like tigers, until I discovered they were on both flanks pouring a crossfire of carbines and pistols on us." Unquote. Though they'd driven back Hampton's dismounted troopers and nearly captured the rebel cannons, the 12th Virginia Cavalry slammed into them on horseback. Now engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat while taking fire from left and right, the Pennsylvanians were forced to retreat. Major Whelan described it as, quote, a race for life, unquote. The 6th Pennsylvania suffered more casualties than any other Union regiment during the battle, leaving behind dozens of dead and wounded troopers strewn across the ground around St. James Church. Around noon, there was another brief lull in the battle, and both sides shifted their lines and prepared for more action. Troopers from Grumble Jones's brigade spotted Federal Cavalry, which was the same force that Robertson encountered earlier in the morning, coming up the Fredericksburg Plank Road toward Brandy Station in the rear of the Confederate position. Jones sent a courier to General Stewart to inform him of the situation. Stewart balked at the information and sent back this message, quote, Tell General Jones to attend to the Yankees in his front and I'll watch the flanks, unquote. When the courier returned to Jones, he was infuriated by Stewart's arrogance and said, quote, So he thinks they ain't coming, does he? Well, let him alone. He'll damn soon see for himself. Unquote. 
Jones, in fact, was quite right. While the battle was seesawing back and forth around St. James Church and Beverly's Ford, General David Gregg's wing had crossed the river at Kelly's Ford and quickly drove away Robertson's two regiments of cavalry. At the head of the column was Colonel Dufay's division, which was moving much more quickly than it had earlier that morning. Dufay was ordered to move west to Stevensburg, and then turn north toward Brandy Station. Gregg's division followed Dufay, but decided to turn north sooner down the Fredericksburg Plank Road. This proved to be the right decision, as it would put them right at the Confederate back door. Last was General Russell's infantry brigade, which was ordered to stay close to the ford to ensure the Confederates wouldn't cut them off. A courier from General Pleasanton found Gregg and ordered him to meet with Pleasanton and Buford east of St. James Church. He rode off as his cavalry continued toward Brandy Station. Another Confederate officer had also spotted the Yankee cavalry riding north toward the railroad depot. It was Stuart's chief of staff, Major Henry B. McClellan. When Stuart furiously rode off to the front earlier in the battle, McClellan stayed behind at his headquarters to direct couriers and such. When he saw the blue-clad horsemen riding toward Fleetwood Heights, he ordered the gun crew of the one available cannon to move to the crest of the hill facing south. The sight of the gun actually caused the lead Federal Brigade under Colonel Percy Wyndham to come to a halt. The normally aggressive Wyndham became cautious, as he believed more artillery to be in the vicinity. The gun crew began to fire rounds at both Federal cavalry and their artillery. Instead of rushing his troopers forward toward the virtually undefended hill, Wyndham dismounted his lead regiment and ordered them to form a skirmish line. This delay gave the rebels just enough time to shift troops to this new threat. Stuart was nagged by the worry that Jones was right and that he was in danger of becoming encircled. A courier from McClellan informing him of the situation spurred him into action. With the battle around St. James Church on hiatus, he ordered most of Jones's and Hampton's brigades along with some of Beckham's artillery to ride to Fleetwood Heights. What ensued was a melee battle that swung back and forth like a pendulum, as each side gained and lost momentum. General Gregg returned from his conference with Pleasanton and Buford and quickly ordered Wyndham's brigade into action. The 1st New Jersey Cavalry was the first to rush up the heights, but before they reached the lone artillery piece, the 12th Virginia Cavalry came riding toward them. The Virginians rode in so quickly that they were unable to form into a battle line and the New Jerseyans easily slashed through the column. Rebels shouted, quote, put up your sabers, draw your pistols, unquote, but the Federals just simply cut them apart with their swords. Just as the 12th Virginia broke and retreated, the Comanche Regiment charged in. They provided more of a fight, but the 1st New Jersey forced the Comanches to retreat as well. But the third time was the charm, and the 6th Virginia finally broke the momentum of the Union troopers. The Federals fell back in confusion. Colonel Percy Wyndham was wounded in the process. As quickly as the Virginians had succeeded, the rest of Wyndham's brigade rushed in and drove the remnants of Grumble Jones's troopers off of Fleetwood Heights. Again, when it seemed as if one side had gained the advantage, in came General Hampton's brigade. The 1st North Carolina, 1st South Carolina, Cobb's Legion, and the Jeff Davis Legion charged in with revolvers blazing and wiped Wyndham's brigade off of the hill. Some of Jones's troopers had rejoined the fight and forced the Federals to abandon some of their artillery that they'd placed too close to the front. As Wyndham's brigade was retreating, General Judson Kilpatrick's brigade arrived on the scene, and Kilpatrick lived up to his reputation by ordering a cavalry charge. He did make several tactical errors, though, primarily not using his artillery to properly support the troopers. The 1st Regiment, the 10th New York, broke in the first wave, their commander wounded and captured in the process. Kilpatrick himself led the 2nd New York, a regiment he commanded earlier in the war, in the second wave of the assault, but even his presence did nothing to help them reach the rebel line, and they were repulsed. His last regiment was the 1st Maine, which he ordered to attack as well. 
This time, the Mainers were able to overwhelm the Confederates, who retreated back down the hill. But like clockwork, the tide turned again. Grumble Jones had rallied much of his brigade, and Stuart, who felt that his front near St. James Church was secure, sent the other two regiments of Jones's command that had been recuperating from the morning's action. Hampton and Jones led their troopers back up the slopes of Fleetwood Heights one more time, and wiped the remnants of Kilpatrick's brigade from the hill. The back-and-forth fighting had exhausted both sides, and it just so happened that the Confederates had enough strength for the last counterpunch. General Gregg, who was frustrated by the results, watched on as his division retreated through Brandy Station. The rebels pursued them for a short time, mostly just to root out any Federals who were destroying supplies at the railroad depot, but Gregg's men regrouped further south and began to withdraw down the Stevensburg Road toward Kelly's Ford. It was apparent that if Gregg's division had been supported in their attack, they would have succeeded in capturing the Heights, which begs the question, what happened to Colonel Dufay's division? As I mentioned earlier, Dufay had continued west towards Stevensburg. The vanguard of the division was led by the 6th Ohio Cavalry, which reached Stevensburg at 10 a.m., but the rest of the division, which was moving unusually slowly, took several more hours to arrive. It's possible that they'd exhausted their horses from marching and countermarching for more than six hours straight. As the Ohioans waited for reinforcements, rebel horsemen were seen coming down the road from Brandy Station. It was the 2nd South Carolina Cavalry, led by Colonel Matthew C. Butler and Wade Hampton's younger brother, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Hampton. They first skirmished with the Federals before charging in and scaring them off. When reinforcements from Colonel Luigi de Cisnola's brigade arrived, the Federals, led by the 1st Massachusetts Cavalry, counterattacked and successfully drove back Butler's regiment, killing Wade Hampton's brother Frank in the process. Another Confederate regiment arrived. This time it was one of Munford's regiments, Colonel Williams C. Wickham's 4th Virginia. Wickham's men were sent in to blunt the Yankee assault, but their formation was easily broken apart by the weight of the attacking Federals. The Virginians retreated west towards Culpeper and the Carolinians north toward Brandy Station. Both regiments eventually regrouped and rallied. Colonel Wickham led another mounted attack against the Federals, but was once again repulsed. He then dismounted his troopers and had them harass Dufay's men with musket and carbine fire. Butler also regrouped his regiment and formed a defensive line near a small tributary called Mountain Run. Dufay acted cautiously. Instead of pressing the attack against the smaller enemy force that his troopers had already thoroughly whipped, he deployed his artillery and ordered them to lob shells at the rebels. Their fire was devastating and accurate. They destroyed the single gun that Stuart had sent with the 2nd South Carolina. Another shell burst right at the feet of Colonel Butler, which nearly ripped his entire leg off. The wound was severe enough to force him out of action for several months. Finally, in the late afternoon, Dufay ordered his division to move north along the old Carolina Road toward Brandy Station to link up with Gregg and Buford's divisions. Just as they began, Dufay received word from Gregg that he was in desperate need of help at Fleetwood Heights. The Frenchman felt that if he continued the way he was planning to go, it would take too long to break through the 2nd South Carolina. So he ordered the division to backtrack the way it had come earlier that day. Dufay's second countermarch of July 9th proved costly once again, because by the time he arrived to support Gregg, Kilpatrick and Wyndham's brigades were already in full retreat. Dufay's division followed behind them toward the Rappahannock. Back in the sector of St. James Church, the troopers of Buford's division had been inactive for nearly three hours. It's unclear why they weren't ordered to attack at the same time that Gregg's division was engaged on Fleetwood Heights. But late in the afternoon, the 1st Division was ordered to attack the Confederate Brigade of General Rooney Lee, whose troopers had taken up a position behind a stone wall situated between the Hazel River and Ruffin's Run. By this time, Pleasanton had been given orders from Hooker that he could withdraw across the Rappahannock if he felt there was nothing left to gain from fighting. 
Pleasanton decided to do exactly that, but felt that Lee's uncommitted rebels might attempt to charge them if they withdrew too early. So Buford's attack was mostly meant to prevent them from doing so. Sometimes you have to attack to defend. The Kentuckian asked the officers of the 2nd Massachusetts and the 3rd Wisconsin Infantry Regiments to flank Lee's brigade out of its position. The infantry skirmishers snuck up on the unsuspecting rebels behind the stone wall and fired a volley into their line, killing and wounding dozens. The skirmishers then fell back toward their own lines. Following up the infantry were the 6th Pennsylvania and the 2nd U.S. Cavalry Regiments. Though the Pennsylvanians had suffered heavily in the morning's fight, they once again charged into action and fought bravely in hand-to-hand -hand combat. They were successful in driving the rebels back from the stone wall, but Lee sent in his reserve regiments to stop the Federal attack. Captain Wesley Merritt, the commander of the 2nd U.S. Regulars, dueled with a rebel officer on horseback. Merritt managed to severely wound him with a saber strike to the leg, which forced the foe to retreat to safety. It's impossible to prove this with 100% certainty, but the officer wounded by Merritt was likely General Rooney Lee himself, who was severely wounded by a saber slash during the battle. Merritt himself was wounded at some point during the fighting, but managed to avoid capture despite nearly being surrounded by Confederate horse soldiers. Not long after Gregg's troopers on the southern slopes of Fleetwood Hill were retreating, Buford ordered his troopers to disengage, and they also withdrew from the battlefield to their previous positions on the north side of the Rappahannock River. As they were falling back, Colonel Thomas Munford's brigade of Virginians finally arrived on the field, too late to do anything of note. Battle of Brandy Station was now over. After over 12 hours of hard fighting, there was estimated to be about 1,300 combined casualties. Federals suffered more, around 900, of which half were missing or captured. In addition, around 350 were wounded and 69 killed in action. The Confederates had suffered somewhere between 400 and 500 casualties, the majority wounded. About 50 were killed in combat. The casualties amongst the officers were high on both sides. General Rooney Lee was wounded severely enough that he'd missed the rest of the campaign. He was actually captured by Union cavalry while he was recovering and would spend the rest of 1863 imprisoned at Fort Monroe and then later in New York. Of Stuart's regimental or battalion commanders, four were wounded and one was killed. In Pleasanton's corps, one brigade commander was killed and one was wounded, two regimental officers were killed and one was wounded and two were captured. In addition, there would have been hundreds of dead and dying horses strewn across the battlefield. There aren't any exact figures on how many were killed, but it can be assumed that the number was much higher than the number of troopers killed. If you ever watch a movie that involves cavalry fighting and the soldiers shoot the men off the horses, that's bullshit. Horses were a larger and easier target, and if you killed the horse, the soldier riding it was basically out of the fight. Both sides claimed victory, but neither had a very convincing case. Pleasanton's corps had mostly done well, despite his original plan being foiled before the operation had even begun. His troopers held their own, not only against Jones and Robertson's brigades, but also against the elite brigades of Stuart's regular command. When Kilpatrick's brigade briefly overran Fleetwood Heights, they managed to capture papers and correspondence from Stuart's headquarters. 
Just how important that intelligence they gathered was debatable. Pleasanton certainly bragged about it in after-battle reports. It's likely that the information was of some value, but certainly not game-changing stuff. Still, the Federals had squandered a great opportunity to actually do some serious damage to Stuart's cavalry. They carried a superiority in numbers of total troops and artillery. The infantry they brought was a serious advantage that was underutilized. Individual units performed admirably in almost every case, but the leadership was a mixed bag. Their biggest issues were miscommunications and lack of coordination, but that could be said about literally every Civil War battle. A common refrain you'll hear from some historians is that a modern technology that could change the outcome of battles the most were radios. I didn't go into too much detail about battlefield communications, but if you'll recall, I mentioned a couple of times how an officer would send a courier to deliver orders or information to another officer. A courier was usually a member of that officer's staff, or sometimes just a non-commissioned officer like a corporal or sergeant. The officer would either write a note, but more commonly verbally say the orders to the courier, who would then deliver the note or repeat it as close to verbatim as possible to the recipient. It was not a particularly complex system, but it was really the only way you could properly communicate on a 19th century battlefield. Nonetheless, it was certainly an imperfect system. In some situations, the courier might have to travel many miles to find their destination. It was easy to get lost, especially if they had limited knowledge of the area. They'd have to ask around until they were able to find the officer they were looking for. Sometimes this could take many minutes, even hours. In that time, the situation could have changed, which would make the courier's information obsolete. The courier could have easily been killed or captured, and no one would have known what happened. So in these situations, it was important for the combat leaders of the Civil War to be proactive, read the situation correctly, and act independently as long as it didn't conflict with their orders. Generals Buford and Gregg performed admirably, but Colonel Dufay came up short in this regard. The general consensus amongst the common soldiers and junior officers was that they had fought well and bloodied the nose of the rebels, but the leadership had failed them. The always opinionated Captain Charles F. Adams Jr. wrote, quote, I am sure a good cavalry officer would have whipped Stuart out of his boots, but Pleasanton is not, and never will be that, unquote. The real victory for the Federals at Brandy Station was a psychological one. Finally, they stood up to the Confederate cavalry and performed better than them in several cases. Though they were still evolving, the cavalry corps had learned a fighting style that suited it. The wide gulf and skill between the northern and southern horse soldiers had shrunk tremendously. They would carry this newfound confidence with them throughout the campaign and the rest of the war. The New York Times would write, quote, The Confederates begin to find that their boasted cavalry is being overmatched by the Union horsemen. Our troops will make as fine cavalry as can be found in the world, unquote. As for the Confederate cavalry, there were also positives and negatives to be gleaned from the Battle of Brandy Station. On the positive side, the rebels had held the ground at the end of the day, and for a lot of people in the Civil War era, that was enough to declare victory. The Federals had caught them off guard and pushed them to the point of breaking, but the boys in gray held the field. Like I just said, this was a huge mental victory for the Yankees, but the Confederates proved that outnumbered and taken by surprise, they could still hold their own in close combat. Also importantly, at least to Robert E. Lee, was that the infantry of the Army of Northern Virginia had not been discovered. Their presence around Culpeper was still unknown to the Federals. Stewart's division had succeeded in holding onto Brandy Station without the help of Longstreet's and Ewell's troops. An interesting alternative scenario to imagine is how things would have changed if the Union Cavalry Corps had managed to break through the Confederate screen and then run into the Rebel First and Second Corps. Would a larger engagement have ensued there? Maybe Lee, having lost the element of surprise, would have abandoned the campaign. 
Perhaps Hooker, knowing that Lee was on the move, would have acted differently. Certainly things to ponder. But like I said, there were plenty of things for the Confederates to be disappointed about. Brandy Station exemplified the best and worst characteristics of General Jeb Stuart. On one hand, he showed that he was a brave and confident combat leader. He was up close to the action for the entire day, responding to new threats as they came. But Stuart was forced into acting as he did because he'd left his division unprepared for the surprise attack on July 9th. His forces had been spread too thin, which caused a lot of communication problems. Not to mention that they were worn out from two pointless grand reviews. Those who believed Stuart to be a pompous dandy were proven right by Brandy Station. I'm a fancy boy. <laughs> as much as Jeb pretended to have won a great victory, everyone knew that this was a poor showing from the Confederates. This would have some sort of psychological effect on the upcoming campaign for the rebels as well. There was also cause for concern about the quality of Stuart's troopers and subordinate officers. His most able officer, General Hampton, did well, but there were poor showings from General Robertson's brigade, which was next to useless in the battle, and from Colonel Munford, who kept his brigade largely out of the action. General Robert E. Lee visited Brandy Station the day after the battle to check on his wounded son Rooney and to speak with General Stuart. Stuart expressed that he felt the battle had been a victory. Two days later, he addressed his division with a speech lauding their success. Quote, Comrades, Two divisions of the enemy's cavalry and artillery, escorted by a strong force of infantry, tested your mettle and found it proof steel. Your saber blows inflicted on that glorious day have taught them again the weight of southern vengeance. Unquote. Lee was at least outwardly pleased with Stuart. Others, less so. Both the citizenry and press were almost universally negative in their reaction to Brandy Station. A Confederate War Department clerk wrote this, quote, the surprise of Stuart on the Rappahannock has chilled every heart. The question is on every tongue. Have our generals relaxed in vigilance? If so, sad is the prospect. Unquote. Southern newspapers, even those that had previously been supportive of the Knight of the Golden Spurs, also gave him a good scolding. The Charleston Mercury accused Stuart of, quote, rollicking, frolicking, and running after girls, unquote. While the Richmond Examiner wrote, quote, this puffed-up cavalry of the Army of Northern Virginia has been twice, if not three times, surprised. Such repeated accidents can be regarded as nothing but the necessary consequences of negligence and bad management. The country pays dearly for the blunders which encourage the enemy to overrun and devastate the land." Unquote. One honest voice came from one of Stuart's staff officers, Captain Charles M. Blackford, who in a letter to his wife wrote, quote, Brandy Station can hardly be called a victory. Stuart was certainly surprised, and but for the supreme gallantry of his subordinate officers and the men in his command, it would have been a day of disaster and disgrace." Unquote. Stuart's chief of staff, Major McClellan, infamously said that Brandy Station, quote, made the Federal Cavalry, unquote. Perhaps a bit hyperbolic, but not too far from the truth. Brandy Station was an anomaly of the Civil War in 1863. Large-scale cavalry battles virtually never happened especially one with sustained, close-up, hand-to-hand combat for more than 12 hours with few lulls in the action. It was one of the few battles of the war where a large portion of the dead soldiers had saber wounds. We talked a little bit about that on the last episode, how more than 90% of the casualties came from musket fire, about 5% came from artillery fire, and then less than 5% came from a combination of both saber and bayonet wounds. Because two brigades of infantry were used, it's technically not considered an all-cavalry battle. But no other engagement of the Civil War included as much cavalry as did the amount that fought at Brandy Station. But the battle showed the flaws inherent to the cavalry of this era. 
Brandy Station turned into a slugfest. I like to imagine two boxers just wailing away at each other, never putting up their gloves to defend, until one boxer just became too exhausted. Ain't gonna be no rematch. Ain't gonna be no rematch. Don't want one. On June 9th, Pleasanton's cavalry attacked, and Stewart's cavalry counterattacked. We talked earlier about why cavalry charges were not seen very often in this era. It usually had to do with the devastating effect of long-range rifled musket fire. While the cavalry charge could be effective against a lightly defended enemy position, it had obvious drawbacks. Once the charge was underway, it was difficult to maintain formation, so even a successful attack would break apart a unit pretty quickly. Time and energy would have to be spent regrouping. Although horses were extremely powerful and fast animals, they had limitations. After a while, they lose momentum and energy and become vulnerable to counterattack, and we saw this time and time again at Brandy Station. Before I wrap up this episode, I did want to kind of touch on what was going on in the rest of the campaign, you know, what was going on with the infantry of both armies. On June 10th, the day after the battle, Lee's operation continued as planned. General Richard Ewell's 2nd Corps and General James Longstreet's 1st Corps quickly departed from Culpeper Courthouse and marched northwest towards Sperryville, Virginia. Lee continued to tactfully argue with President Davis and Secretary of War Seddon for more troops. He still held out hopes that he'd recover several of his veteran brigades in time for the campaign. Most of General George Pickett's division had rejoined the 1st Corps at Culpeper before it left, but it was still short two of its brigades. One led by General Micah Jenkins was still in North Carolina with General D.H. Hill, and the other, under General Montgomery Course, was left at Hanover Junction, an important railroad depot north of Richmond. General Lee wanted both, and tried to justify to Davis and Seddon that they were of more use on the campaign than they were defending Richmond or the North Carolina coast. He still maintained that there was no serious threat to the capital, which ultimately turned out to be true, but it was a sensitive situation. Lee was right. Militarily, it didn't make sense to leave behind a token force of veteran soldiers to defend Richmond. If the campaign culminated in a battle, then every soldier would matter. But these decisions weren't made in a vacuum. The safety of Richmond was always paramount to President Jefferson Davis, even if it was just to prevent the psychological impact of the loss of the capital to the enemy. The Confederates pushed on through Sperryville, until they crossed the Blue Ridge Mountains at Chester Gap. They arrived at Front Royal, Virginia on June 12th. In a span of roughly 48 hours, they'd covered about 45 miles. The 1st and 2nd Corps took separate routes to avoid clogging up the road too much, but even still, their columns stretched out well over 20 miles. Conditions for the soldiers were miserable. Virginia experienced a heat wave in the middle of June. To make matters worse, clouds of dust were created by tens of thousands of soldiers marching on dirt roads, which suffocated the men, particularly those at the rear of the column. An army on the move would always result in some men falling behind for various reasons. They were generally referred to as stragglers. Some stragglers did this on purpose to avoid hard marching, but most simply passed out from dehydration or heat exhaustion. Lack of water was a problem. Can I get you anything? Water would be nice. It's unclear how many perished, but at least a few died from the strenuous march alone. At this time, there was a small federal force that occupied the Shenandoah Valley. They were based in a few places, but the main garrisons were at Winchester and Harper's Ferry. General Yule decided to split his corps into two wings that would both move down the valley and drive out or capture any Union troops they encountered. 
One column consisted of General Robert Rhodes' division and a brigade of cavalry under the command of General Albert Jenkins, which had just arrived. They would move north to Berryville, where it was believed that about 1,800 federal troops were located. Once they'd been dealt with, Rhodes and Jenkins would continue on to Martinsburg, which was occupied by about 1,300 Union soldiers. The main body of Ewell's corps would march on Winchester to confront General Robert Milroy's division of about 7,000 Union troops. Ewell had at hand the divisions of Generals Jubal Early and Allegheny Johnson, which totaled about 12,000 men. Many of the soldiers in those divisions had served under General Stonewall Jackson when he defeated three separate Union commands in the Valley Campaign the previous spring. In fact, they were marching along a very similar route that they had taken on that operation. They'd even won major victories at both Front Royal and Winchester. It's impossible to imagine that this didn't aid their confidence, at least in some way. While Ewell and Longstreet left Culpeper back on June 10th, General Hooker continued to waffle about what to do. Even though the Federal Cavalry had failed to break the Confederate screen at Brandy Station, General Pleasanton was convinced that the Rebel infantry was in the area, which he expressed to the commanding general. Pleasanton was of the opinion that Stuart was not simply planning to launch a raid and that something bigger was happening. Hooker was initially unconvinced. For the second time, he suggested to President Lincoln that if the Army of Northern Virginia completely abandoned their position near Fredericksburg, that the Army of the Potomac should swoop down and move on Richmond as quickly as possible. And for the second time, Lincoln shot him down and reminded him that his objectives were Lee's army and the protection of their own capital city. The next day, June 11th, Hooker finally began to heed to the advice that he was receiving. He ordered four of his seven infantry corps, which he placed under the command of General John Reynolds, to concentrate in the area that was occupied by Pleasanton's cavalry. There, they would watch for signs of enemy movement and hold the fords along the Rappahannock River that we covered during the Battle of Brandy Station. On June 12th, Hooker received solid evidence that the bulk of the Army of Northern Virginia was no longer along the Rappahannock. He sent out a circular to all of his corps commanders to move civilian camp followers away from the front, and on the morning of June 13th, he sent letters to Generals Reynolds and Meade where he expressed his interpretations of Lee's movements. Though he threw out several suggestions as to what Lee intended to do, he did theorize that the Confederates might be heading to the Shenandoah Valley, but he was still unsure. Later in the day, he received a report that said the 1st and 2nd Corps had already reached Sperryville and were heading to the gaps in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Pretty much during this entire time, Lee was several steps ahead of Hooker. It goes to show how effective the Confederate screen had been and how difficult intelligence gathering was in this era. It seemed that Hooker always received information at least a day or two late. When he learned that two entire Confederate Corps were no longer in his front, they were already in the valley. Now fully convinced that the rebels were moving north, he finally sprang into action. General Hooker informed General-in-Chief Henry Halleck of his intention to leave his current base of operations. As soon as the Army of the Potomac packed all of their supplies, they would relocate to a spot further north, somewhere on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. He settled on Dumfries, Virginia. Once the Army reached Dumfries, they would continue to Manassas Junction, near the old Bull Run battlefield. From there, the actions of the Union troops would be determined by the movement of General Lee's army. For the generals of the 19th century, reacting instead of acting was almost a sin. These are the dudes who studied the campaigns of Napoleon at West Point, where audacity, boldness, and taking the initiative were taught to be paramount to military success. I think at this point, his confidence in his ability to do anything was just shattered beyond repair. One might suggest that Hooker take a little time for self-care. But there was no time for that when Lee's army was rapidly marching north. 
The loss at Chancellorsville, the aura of Lee's invincibility, the lack of faith that his subordinates had in him, and his own belief that Halleck was undermining his efforts combined to make him doubt his every move. He would maneuver the Army of the Potomac into a position to protect Washington from the rebels, but Lee would dictate the terms otherwise. Alright folks, that's where I'm going to leave off for today. When we pick up again next week, we'll talk about the continuing moves of both armies and some of the clashes that occurred on the way to Pennsylvania, including several cavalry skirmishes and the Second Battle of Winchester. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton. This has been, excuse me, History. <laughs>